Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Now, here's your host, James Landry. Welcome to the Palace Perspective, the podcast that brings you conversations and professional analysis on the topics and trends affecting your everyday financial life. I'm James Landry, and I'm glad you chose to listen in today for our final podcast of 2020. Today, we will cover what happened in the investment markets in 2020, and perhaps more importantly, we're going to discuss what is our outlook for the year ahead. And it's been exciting to explore this new media format, and we promise to continue making improvements as we build our experience in podcasting. Speaking of experience, I've asked two guests to join me today. The first is Mark Bogar, CFA, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Palace Capital Advisors. I think what surprised me throughout the course of the year was how quickly economic activity bounced back. So certainly parts of the economy have been devastated and have stayed low on the activity level throughout this pandemic. But that's a relatively small part of the economy. And joining Mark once again is Rich Mullen, one of the founding partners of Palace Capital. I just think that the, the depth and breadth and the magnitude of this pandemic will lead more and more people to be readily accepting of taking this vaccine. So, you know, my my personal viewpoint of this is, is one of optimism. Mark and Rich, welcome to both of you. Hello, James. Hello, James. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, Mark, I want to get started with sort of a big picture question, if I could. And as we look back on 2020, in March, we saw one of the biggest drops ever in the Dow. Uh, in a single day as a result of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and, of course, of course the, the panic that ensued uh, following that pandemic. But then again, there were some surprises uh, that followed, I think, you know, as the months went by after that significant correction. And uh, so as you look back in 2020, what were, from, the, from your perspective, where you sit as a chief investment officer, what were some of the things that surprised you and uh, perhaps... Um, it wasn't the end of the world as we thought it might be back in March. Well, James, the market has not dealt with a global pandemic since, you know, say the early 1900s and the Spanish flu. Um, we've seen different SARS viruses, different viruses come through Asia. They've been relatively regionally contained. But there's, like I said, this is the first time we've had a global pandemic in quite a long time. And so markets reacted very severely and swiftly, which I would think would make sense given how much of the economies had to get shut down. I think what surprised me uh, throughout the course of the year was how quickly economic activity bounced back. So certainly there were parts of the economy, uh, be it travel leisure, be it uh, restaurants, be it gyms, have been devastated and have stayed uh, low on the activity level um, throughout this pandemic. But that's a relatively small part of the economy. And then if you look at overall, especially when I say, sorry, relatively small part of uh, the economy that impacts public markets. So if you take the part of the economy that impacts public markets, uh, you saw retail sales bounce back quite strongly. Uh, the, we had tremendous stimulus programs out of the U.S. government that helped support consumers, which then enabled them to continue to buy on the, on the sales front. Uh, and you also saw the tremendous ability of technology to solve a lot of problems that we've had in this country. So as, every, as everyone shifted to working from home or those that could, uh, shifted to working from home or just getting their, their businesses done um, via delivery of services to the home, via doing uh, Zoom calls, that technology uh, enabled 
more the economy to continue to operate than, than I would have thought coming into this pandemic. So I think technology saved the day. We saw earnings bounce back uh, much more quickly, quickly than I anticipated. And now we still have a lot to go in front of us, which I think we'll talk about later. But for most surprising of the year was how quickly the economy bounced back, especially on the technology side. Yeah, for me, that's a great point, Mark. Uh, for me, the interesting thing was, uh, we've talked about this in prior podcasts, our society was very much headed in a digital direction. And where COVID showed uh, up on the scene here, I think it accelerated that digital direction. So there's often this case where there are losers, there are winners in the economy. And what we've seen uh, in some instances is this advancement of this digital technology replace perhaps some of the weaker areas of the economy, things that, uh, as you pointed out, are, are still problematic and probably will be going on into the future, be it travel or, or what have you. So people have been talking about this disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street, and that's been of a bit of surprise to me because you would think if you look purely at the economic numbers, the indices would not be in the, at the level that they are right now. So that, I think, was probably the biggest surprise for me. So the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street, certainly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, guys, as we turn our look now to 2021, and uh, that's where most people are looking at this stage of the year is, you know, here comes a new year and what does it bring with us? Certainly none of us thought, I think, December of 2019 that we would be faced with the challenges that we were faced with in 2020. So there are always unknowns. But as you look at 2021, Mark, maybe I'll start with you. What are some of the near, maybe even some mid or long-term challenges that may be concerning to you as you look into the year ahead? Well, the two highlights that I would think about uh, most prominently would be first, uh, what's going on in Washington. We still have, uh, we obviously had the election in November where there was a big blue wave anticipated that did not come to fruition. But with that, we still have the Georgia Senate runoff election where if that it goes uh, to the Democrats, if both seats go to the Democrats, then actually the blue wave scenario comes back in uh, where we could see that progressive agenda uh, that would contain most likely higher taxes, more fiscal stimulus. So that is a risk to current expectations in the market. Now, the probabilities are, uh, as we sit here today, that the Republicans will at least take one of those seats and we will have a divided government. And typically divided government means more gridlock and the rules that are in place stay, which markets tend to like. Uh, but that is a, a nearer term uh, risk. And if we go, the more intermediate term risk would obviously be how do, does our base economy recover from this coronavirus? Because we still have cases are, are the highest they've ever been. We have the vaccines rolling out. How will that interaction uh, happen over the course of the year? Will the vaccines be sufficient to have the economy fully open up and we get back to uh, recovery? Because why that's so important for markets is that earnings are still um, down from where they were, say, you know, a year ago. Pre-pandemic, earnings expectations are still lower than they were pre-pandemic. So on one hand, that's the opportunity that earnings can recover uh, strongly if the vaccine plays out the way we hope. Uh, but that's also a risk that if, if the vaccine does not play out, economic activity does not come back, then earnings can stay low. So those are two big things for me. How does Washington play out and how does uh, the vaccine play? Yeah, Rich, I know uh, you've done some reading on the vaccine. Obviously, the vaccine is just getting started to being rolled out to uh, the country. And um, uh, we'll see. I, I think the, the a goal is for those in the medical profession to get access to the vaccine as quickly as possible, certainly first. Uh, because of the roles that they play. But, um, you know, 
is the vaccine going to be the cure for all this? I mean, is it a panacea or are there concerns that maybe people have about the vaccine? Uh, I know you've read some of that uh, and, and have addressed that recently, but what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I personally am rather uh, optimistic about the vaccine. However, you know, there, you've heard the term vaxxers and there's a reluctance perhaps on behalf of some people even prior to this pandemic to receive vaccines in one form or another. Um, I think they hearken back to histories of thalimidide uh, and some of the other complications we've had with, uh, you know, medical solutions and vaccines. But I think, you know, recently we've seen some reaction in uh, London, I think there was some anaphylactic shock associated with it. But all these are very normal um, uh, reactions and, and outcomes of a virus that's, uh, I mean, a, a vaccine that's deployed so quickly. One of the things that I looked at was the fact that um, there aren't usually immunocompromised people in trials. So these types of reactions don't really show up in clinical trials. So the fact that, you know, someone would have a reaction to it is not surprising. And I don't think is um, an indication of the effectaciousness of this vaccine. I read today that uh, Moderna's vaccine actually is coming online right now. I just think that the, the depth and breadth and the magnitude of this pandemic will lead more and more people to be readily uh, accepting of taking this vaccine. So, you know, my, my personal uh, viewpoint of this is, is one of optimism, and I think that the vaccine will have its desired effect. That said, a thousand people were infected here in London with a strain, another strain of the uh, COVID-19 and especially virulent strain. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that. that there's gonna be a continuation of these additional mutations or strains that come out, but the medical community has already responded to that and saying that this is an anticipated problem, and which is the same reason why you get the flu vaccine every year because it also mutates. So this vaccine that's out in the marketplace right now will have the ability to be um, you know, manipulated and, and improved to address these especially virulent and mutated uh, forms of this particular virus. So I, I'm optimistic. Rich and Mark, as we think about long-term uh, impact on the uh, markets and focusing on the U.S. economy, obviously certain segments of the U.S. economy have uh, been impacted at a catastrophic level. I'm thinking of travel and leisure, restaurants for sure, uh, retail. Uh, I mean, how many big names did we see filing bankruptcy this year in the retail space? Um, several. Um, so, uh, you know, how much damage really has been done? I mean, do we know to the extent of the damage? And when do we get out and kind of return back to the way things were uh, long term? Is that a year and a half, three years? Mark, any, any uh, guesses to that? I'll have to pull up my crystal ball, James, and see what, what it says on that question. Um, I think uh, from an investment seat, we can do a good job of predicting um, how things will recover. The timing is one that's a little bit more uncertain. Um, but when I think about, well, how things will recover, we've talked a lot about trends were already in place in society, meaning the digitization of society was already in place, uh, which was affecting things like retail. So to the extent uh, retailers have gone, some retailers have gone bankrupt during the crisis, that trend was already in place. And so that happened faster than we would have anticipated, but from an investment standpoint, we were already anticipating that. So as we look at our investments, we're trying to figure out 
which ones will recover from this COVID, which ones and which ones have been scarred and, and won't recover. So that's an ongoing theme of what we talk about. If we're talking about recovery, we're thinking about things like, you know, a lot of elective surgeries have been put on hold right now. So those will come back that people will still need to get surgeries done. So that's going to happen. It's on hold now, but that will happen. Uh, people will travel again, but will they transit more leisure travel or business travel? We actually think uh, business travel may be more impacted and maybe a little bit more scarred than say leisure travel. Leisure travel, people are going to want to get back out, go to beaches and travel where um, I know a lot of businesses, you, we have to do our quarterly West Coast uh, trip. And well, you can do a lot of that by Zoom now. So um, we're trying to pick apart which industries are gonna recover and which are not. And a lot of this still comes back to that. If the vaccine is in place, we will get back to normal economic activity. Some industries will win and some industries will be disadvantaged. Could I add to that, James? Um, so Mark touched upon this uh, concept of scarring, uh, which, I think is, is very real and it's, it's really based on in a psychological um, element. And that is, you know, prior to 9-11, air travel was whatever percentage it was of the population traveled. And then after 9-11, there was a certain percentage of the people that would not travel as a result of that. And that's called the scarring. And when we talk about, um, you know, the impacts of this virus long-term, short-term and long-term, we have to really look deeply at this concept of scarring and, and what it's going to do. And I think it's never more evident than it is really um, right now in the commercial real estate uh, market. Uh, that's often been talked about. So Pew Research put out a study, uh, results of a study here recently, and they found that um, over half of the U.S. Uh, employees uh, are willing or would like to keep working from home rather than returning to the office. That could be for a multitude of reasons. One could be this concept of scarring, a true fear of going back into the office. And another could be that there was some realization through this advancement of digitization that they can actually be as effective as they were before. A third or more of the workforce has stated that they'd like to at least adopt that stay at home, work at home policy, um, at least part time. And then there is an element um, of the, a smaller element of the workforce that said, listen, I can't wait to get back in the office and I wanna go. But the, the reality of that is um, we've talked about some of the near-term impacts um, of this pandemic. And one of the ones I point to is the reduced reduction in ridership in mass transit. And the MTA, the New York Transit Authority, uh, has stated that their ridership is down about 70%. These are going to cause budgetary concerns that could be short-term issues that turn into long-term issues, long-term economic issues and start to feed on themselves. If the M uh, New York Transit Authority can't support itself, that smaller element of the workforce that desires to return to the workforce or to the uh, workplace may not be able to for one reason or another. So it's yet to be determined exactly what the deep long-term scarring effects of this pandemic will be on the economy. But I think we all are in agreement that there's gonna be change and the significance and, and the magnitude of that change is yet to be determined. Yeah, uh, for sure, and I think it has to be. Um, I wanna focus now, uh, gentlemen, on uh, market valuations. Now, as, as I look at the, the Wall Street Journal, you know, the Dow hit a record 30,000, I think it was November 24th, and it's continuing to climb. The S&P 500 is at, you know, heights it's never seen before, 3,700. Uh, and, and then and then some. So, Mark, from your standpoint, um, market valuations are stocks 
reasonably valued right now? Well, James, I think they are. Um, and let me break down why, why that is. So I think a couple things drive valuations in markets. Um, one is earnings. So earnings growth, I think we still have in front of us. As we talked about, a recovery from coronavirus is going to drive earnings higher for those industries that have been affected. And the industries that have been um, strong through this, say technology companies, they should continue to perform well because they're taking market share within the economy. So I think we still have an earnings recovery in front of us. And then you talk about valuations. So if you think about um, price to earnings ratios, the PE on the S&P 500 is higher than normal. That is true. However, all investments are made uh, relative to other investments. So you think about, I think a good metric to think about is versus um, the PE versus the 10-year treasury yield. So if you think about 10-year treasuries back in the bubble of 1999, 10-year treasuries were actually at 6.5%, and their earnings yield of the S&P was around where it is today, about 4 or 5%. And so you could get risk-free higher, uh, risk-free return that was higher than what the S&P was giving you at that time. But you roll the clock forward, and bond rates you know, are near zero right now. And so that matters for relative valuations for stocks. If, if you're earning 80 basis points on a 10-year treasury, then if you get a dividend yield above that on the S&P and you get earnings growth, that valuation is actually reasonable given um, where interest rates are. So my concern would come if and when interest rates go up sometime in the future. That's when we can think about uh, stock market PEs a little bit more closely. But where interest rates are today and the view of, say, the Fed is going to rates are going to stay lower for longer. Valuations are are more than reasonable today on stocks. Let's stay on the Fed for a second, and Rich, I'll, I'll pivot this to you. Um, any more that the Fed Reserve can do at this point? I mean, I think rates, uh, as as Mark pointed out, have never been lower. Um, so, any more the Fed can do, and then I'll, I'll piggyback with another sort of related question: stimulus. Um, do we need more stimulus checks uh, to help the economy or, or to plow back into the investment you know, markets? Uh, James, let me tackle the second part of that question first, if you would. So currently, um, there are 4 million Americans that have un been unemployed for 27 uh, weeks or longer. Uh, one in three jobless persons in the U.S. have been uh, unemployed for that period or longer as well. So. You've got a, a, a large portion of the workforce that's still out of work. And I think this goes back to this notion of, you know, in this surprise, if you will, of uh, the advancement in the uh, economic or the indices and then the economy itself, there still is a, a large element of the economy that is suffering. And that's evident by these pervasively high unemployment numbers. And I don't really think that because of this scarring and this damage that we're talking about uh, that could be uh, more have a more longer term effect on the economy i think this segment of the workforce is going to be challenged and i do think it will play out in the economy over the longer term meaning if the travel industry doesn't resume back to current levels for example there's a certain segment of the workforce obviously employed in that and that will be pervasive uh, that will be a pervasive pressure on the uh, level of unemployment. So to answer your question, I do think until we retool or figure out a way to uh, make this recovery more even across the entire workforce, that stimulus is needed. Many of these benefits run out at the end of December. And right now I'm, we're hearing that there's a 
a, a much smaller uh, addendum to the CARES Act being contemplated and, and perhaps will uh, be passed uh, as, as soon as uh, today, if not this week. So I do think more stimulus is needed because of, if you will, this forgotten element of the workforce that still is uh, suffering. So I, I think that that's important. We also um, have seen some of these pressures uh, in the economy expressed at that level uh, in food banks and, and the pressure on some of the social network, um, you know, the, uh, the help that's needed right now is, I think, um, emblematic of the suffering that's still going on in a certain segment of the workforce. So I think that there is more stimulus needed. In terms of the Fed, um, I think that uh, the Fed right now obviously has no more latitude to cut rates, uh, given where rates are. But I do think that the quantitative easing um, could continue for a while until we see the traction needed, um, you know, the traction gained in the recovery. One of the things that I think we're, uh, I'm more interested in is uh, that pace of recovery and how it translates into the direction of interest rates. So um, if the recovery continues, uh, perhaps ga gathers more steam in the new year and there's pressure, upward pressure on interest rates, that could be problematic. Uh, to valuations, as Mark pointed out, in the market. So I think the Fed could try and create a situation where they could temper that upward, the pace of the recovery if they need to, because if interest rates start to escalate and all of a sudden valuations are called in, there could be a cascading effect into the parts of the economy that have already recovered. So the Fed could continue quantitative easing. I think that that's necessary. Um, they obviously have run out of bullets in their gun to cut interest rates. But then, um, you know, as I said, I think a secondary round of stimulus on Capitol Hill is, is needed. You know, uh, speaking of interest rates, obviously we've seen this historic in, uh, low interest rate uh, environment. And that, I think, has spurred a lot of uh, home buying uh, for uh, individuals. As a matter of fact, the uh, National Association of Home Builders Index um, of home buying sentiment, it soared to a record 90 in, in November of this year. Um, and we haven't seen anything like that before and I'd say, 45 years. And it's, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the housing boom just before the 2008 financial crisis that we had. So do you see any correlations between then and now? Maybe Mark, I'll start with you. Well, there's certainly a correlation in that home buying sentiment is high, right? So you're correct with that. I do think there's, there's major differences though. Is it just a function of the interest rates being so low? I mean, people are just going out and taking mortgages and no, I think it's, well, in my opinion, it's a, well, interest rates low is certainly helpful. Um, I think uh, people are looking to leave cities and move towards more suburban areas. So that is certainly supportive of the housing environment. But the big, big, big difference, in my opinion, is just the environment. Remember the financial crisis of how many, you know, no, um, no down payment loans were being given. And so there was like a frenzy. There was more of a uh, financial flipping frenzy. And I think what the banks learned from that point in time was, uh, underwriting standards have to be maintained, even especially when in hot markets. And so I think what we have not seen is is this return of the, you know, no money down, somebody can buy a $800,000 home with, with no documentation. That was a no money down, no documentation. Remember, there were loans going out like that right. for, for very expensive homes. And so that's not the situation we have here. There's true, sorry, in my opinion, there's true underlying demand. And that demand has shifted very quickly in a short period of time. So it's hard for the housing supply to catch up with that. So in my opinion, we're not seeing a bubble. Now, any given community can be can be a little overpriced. But as far as a nationwide, I don't think we have the issue that we had 
prior to the crisis. You think we'll see more people uh, moving out of metro urban areas into the suburbs as a result of COVID? I do, I do, and also towards uh, vacation areas. If you yeah. can, a lot of vacation areas, be at the mountains, be at the beaches, wherever, um, people tended to, well, have a home in the city and a vacation because you had to do your job in the city. But if you can now do your job from these beautiful locations, you could see, in my opinion, more and more demand for some of those locations. So I think that's another scarring that may, on the positive side for some of those properties, uh, continue on the positive side. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's that first and foremost right now. But I also think, obviously, pervasively low interest rates have uh, enabled that trend, supported that trend. But the if you go back to the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street, so you would think that with pervasively high unemployment that you would not see this type of a boom in the housing market. But that unemployment metric is really attributed to or attached to this segment of the workforce that's not buying vacation homes. That's where that, uh, that high, pervasively high unemployment is focused, that element. But with the advancement of the stock market, we've had this simultaneous, very bizarre situation wealth creation, if you will, in people feeling flush as a result of their 401ks. And, and then we've seen a, um, a bit of a boom here in this IPO market mm -hmm. with the advance of uh, the Biden administration here, the specter of the advance of the Biden administration and everything that that may portend, be it electric vehicles and, and some of the, um, you know, the IPOs that have been rolling mm -hmm. out in the EV market and so on that have really uh, been prolific and in some instances, I think perpetuated this notion of feeling flush, low interest rates, the COVID chasing people out of the metropolitan area. And then before COVID, you could argue there was a housing shortage yeah. or at least it was a pressured market, right? Yeah. So the confluence of those factors have really created what we're seeing in the housing market. The question is the sustainability of that and that will be really predicated on the sustainability of the economic recovery. This has been really great, guys, and we're coming down to the conclusion here, so maybe I'll just ask one final question and, and feel free to, either of you to field it. Any last minute portfolio action steps before year end for a, a typical investor that they would be thinking about? Well, I think a typical investor always wants to keep an eye on the long run and don't um, invalidate your long run plan for short run decisions. Uh, but certainly, uh, an investor can think about tax loss harvesting and any tax uh, taxable accounts. That, that now is the opportunity to do that. Um, and but don't um, change your long run allocation based on short run decisions. Right. And, and speaking of that, I, you know, depending on the results of January fifth, I know this is a loaded mm -hmm. question, Mark. But uh, from a CIO's perspective, do you manage your portfolio differently if it's a blue wave versus not a blue wave? I think you do have to take into consideration what the policy changes could be. Um, and then you, you weigh the odds of those changes actually coming in. So we certainly have to take that into account in the investments we make today. Um, but where we stand, the odds seem to be that we'll have uh, a status quo of a Republican Senate, Democrat House. I guess it's a change of Democrat president, but we'll still have a status quo of gridlock. And so if that's the case, that's our base case. But if that were to change, we'd have to reevaluate and, and think about the implications of whether it's be it from a tax perspective or any fiscal stimulus perspective, et cetera. So don't let the immediate dictate your long-term uh, uh, objectives, uh, right? I'm sure uh, people remember from our, our podcast leading up to the election that certainly in the long run, the elections are just a, a blip in the road and that in the long run, you want to stay invested, stay um, adhering to your long-run asset allocation. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add, uh, absolutely agree with Mark um, regarding you know making any sort of 
near-term uh, adjustments to your portfolio in response to what's kind of playing out on the television, if you will. I think one of the sustainable uh, trends is going to be in this ESG uh, market, and that's uh, you know environmental, social, and governance. And there's for those of you who have not heard this, because um, it, it's all over right now, uh, the the television and so on, the, and the uh, talking heads on uh, the financial networks. This is a trend I think that will out of this COVID be sustainable and and probably gather uh, a lot more momentum than it already has. And I think people are concerned now about uh, corporate behavior and uh, some of the behavior that, you know, may perpetuate, um, you know, some of the uh, damage that's been taking place in in our economic recovery. So I think, you know, as we look forward, the ESG is going to be a big part, and it already is. We have a portfolio here that's an ESG-focused portfolio, and I think that that's going to be something that we're going to start to be more attentive to, and I think the market will as well. So I think that that's uh, something that really needs to be uh, considered. Well, that will do it for this round. Thanks so much, Rich and Mark. And believe it or not, the next time we do a podcast, it will be 2021. And I know for many of our listeners, the new year can't come soon enough. If you'd like to speak personally with Rich or Mark about your thoughts on the investment markets, uh, you can reach out to them through our website, www.palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S capitaladvisors.com. And of course, you can reach out to any member of the Palace Capital Advisors team to talk about any aspect of your financial and investment planning. To all of our listeners, happy holidays and a very happy new year. We'll see you in 2021. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, Triad Advisors, LLC, and their representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based on publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only is not personalized investment advice and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Securities offered through Triad Advisors, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC is a separate entity from Triad Advisors, LLC. 